Radio. Theology of the Body Part 2, Destiny and Design. A talk by Paul Ellard at the Immaculata Mission School 2017, held at the Launceston Church Grammar School in Tasmania. So, next time they went, they all went out, four of them, and they went out in the boat, and they didn't go too far offshore, only about 100 metres. And they're out there fishing, and the, the first priest, he says, oh, guys, after a couple of hours, he said, guys, I've run out of bait. I'll just go and get some more bait. Is that all right? And they say, yeah, okay, see ya. priest just gets out, walks over the boat, just straight across the water, right over all the way to the bank, goes up to the car, gets some more bait. The Jewish rabbi's looking, going, I don't believe this. This is unbelievable. What is it with these Catholic priests? Anyway, comes back and he's kind of really, no, no one even looked, no one even raised an eyebrow. It's just the, the Jewish guy kind of freaking out. Anyway, the second guy, second priest says, oh, guys, I've run out of bait. I'm going to have to go and get some um, bait. So yeah, no worries. He just gets out, straight out of the boat, across the water, up to the car. Guy says, I can't believe this. Anyway, and you guessed it. Finally, the third priest, same thing. I need some bait. Over the edge, where he goes. Jewish rabbi says, look, I'm thinking to himself, you know, I'm, I'm just as holy as these guys. You know, if they can do it, I can do it. And he said, I've run out of bait, guys. I'm just going to go and um, get some more bait. So, yeah, no worries. They didn't, they didn't bat an eyelid. So he takes a deep breath like this and he steps out like this, straight to the bottom like a lead balloon. <laughs> the guy can't swim. The priest reach him over, pull him out, pull the guy back into the boat. He's coughing and splattering up half the ocean. And one priest turns to the other priest and said, do you think we should have told him that the sandbar's on the other side of the boat? We've got no Jews here, have we? No offence taken. Yeah. All right, so let's, um, let's pick up at where we were. Um, we were looking at our three Ds, and we want to look at now design, our definition of design, a particular plan, purpose, or intention indicated by the form and the functionality of a thing. And from the Latin, we get to set apart for a specific purpose. So this is how God has created us. We talked before about who the Trinity uh, is, and the, the Catechism puts it beautifully. This is uh, Catechism, paragraph 221. God has revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an eternal exchange of love. Remember this? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's destined us to share in that exchange. So our life is all about getting and being part of the inner love life of the Trinity. And that's why our bodies and marriage is such an important statement. Now, Scripture uses many images to describe the mystery of God. And remember, they're all analogies, so they're all lacking something, but... Um, John Paul has explained that the spousal image, you know, the like marital spousal image, the spousal image is the best image in trying to understand the mystery of who God is. In other words, it's the least inadequate analogy that we can use of all the biblical images. And when we look at the Bible, the Bible begins with a marriage 
of a couple, of a man and a woman, and it ends with another marriage, Christ and the church. So this is highly significant. So this idea is what we call the interpretive key. This provides the interpretive key for the whole biblical story, including the controversial teachings of the church. God wants to marry us. Scripture says, I will betroth you to me forever. And St. Paul says in this very powerful thing, and John Paul just raves on about this, how important this text is. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I mean in reference to Christ and the church. Now that last sentence, rich, deep. John Paul says, The church cannot therefore be understood unless we keep in mind the great mystery involved in the creation of male and female and the vocation of both to conjugal love, to fatherhood and motherhood. Christopher West says then, being a Christian means learning how to direct eros, that ache in the heart, towards that which truly satisfies the nuptial union of Christ and the church. In short, these heavenly nuptials are what we long for, desire. They are what we're created for, the design. And they're what we're headed for, our destiny. If Christianity is not framed as such, as God's passionate desire for union with us and our quest for true satisfaction of eros in union with him, if it's not done that way, it eventually becomes incomprehensible and meaningless. This is why so many people leave the faith. And they leave it over sexual issues because this principle comes in stark contrast to what what they're hungering for and what they think is the solution. Scripture in the book of Job says, Ask the animals and they will teach you. Or the birds in the air and they will teach you. Or speak to the earth and it will teach you. Or let the fish of the sea inform you. And in Luke's gospel, consider how the flowers grow. So this intricate design of creation speaks about the intimate designs of the creator. His purposes, his plans, and this eternal wedding feast. When we adjust our focus and open our hearts to it, all of nature becomes an astounding theology lesson. For example, the goal in all of nature is life. Okay, we see it everywhere. Every living thing in creation is designed to reproduce. Every plant, tree, shrub, blade of grass tells the story of a seed that is found life in fertile soil. Nature's reproductive process is happening all around us all the time. If God is speaking to us through the natural world, 
then it's clear that one of his favourite subjects is mating and fertility. Giving life. One has to be blind not to recognise this in the unending song of life which we see everywhere. So, Genesis text, that famous text, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created him. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So to say theology of the body is simply another way of saying that we're made in God's image. It is to recognize that our bodies are a sign of God's mystery in the world. Now, again, we're made in God's image. God's not made in our image. God is not sexual. God is complete. We have to just keep reminding ourselves um, what we're saying here. All right. The third and the final D is destiny. What is destiny? It's one's arrival point, one's end or fate. In Latin, we get to make firm or established. In archery, we get to aim at, aim at the target. Desire has a trajectory. Wherever we aim it, that's where we will arrive. Desire is incredibly powerful. If you, if you really desire to be wealthy, you'll, you'll actually end up being super wealthy. Um, but that's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> what we desire is very powerful. What we want to desire is God and allow God to give us what we need. But if we have no aim, no goal, no destiny then we have no morality. Think about it. In other words, if we have no particular place to go, there's no right or wrong way to get there. Isn't that interesting? We get back to relativism. Well, I do it this way. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me? Everything's the same and there's no right or wrongs. Our world is full of that. This world and its pleasures were created by God as signs and icons, foretastes, in other words, of the infinite joys that await us in heaven. However, when we direct our desire for the infinite towards the finite pleasures, we turn icons into idols. You see the difference? There's a beautiful line that um, Jesus says to St. Faustina, it's recorded in her diary. She's looking at just the beautiful lake and the, oh, the wonder of creation. And he says to her, know that I created all of this for you. And he says it to other mystics and saints in the church, the same similar sort of thing. That if we didn't exist, creation wouldn't exist. Understand that, that God has given creation for us and we just take it all for granted. We never thank him. You know, when, when you say, God, thank you for the food, maybe it's good to say, Lord, thank you for these vegetables. Thank you for the soil that they can grow. Thank you for the sun. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for the atmosphere. 
Thank you for the machinery that got it from the farm to my table. You know, I love aeroplanes. You know, a couple of years ago, I was in an aeroplane and I just suddenly had, I mean, you probably already thought this through, but it was, it was mind-changing for me. God created aeroplanes. The laws of physics, this, without the laws of physics, the planes wouldn't fly. They'd fall out of the sky. So God even created aeroplanes. Everything we see is a gift from God. We just should be continually thanking him, thanking him. Imagine how he feels. He pours all these gifts out and nobody ever still, very few people say thank you. Every day, every day is mercy. Remember that we sang earlier? It's just amazing. Anyway, so this beauty of creation is given for us. It should just make us so humble and so grateful. Oh, and the other thing, I forgot. Yeah, and Jesus said to her, see, she's saying, oh, Lord, it's so beautiful, blah, 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 blah. And you know what he says? Wait till you see what I have in store for you in the next life. Whoa, puts a chill down your arm. Like, you know, we've got we to think like this. We've got to think like heaven. Wait till you see. There are going to be things that we just, we, we just can't speak of. It's just going to be so beautiful, you know. And we've got to keep this vision in our hearts and our minds. The saints understood this. The saints understood this well. Okay. Father Jared Van says this, The man, the heart of a man is an abyss. There is room in it for the infinity because in it there is an infinity of desire. Did you ever think about your desires as being infinite? And it cannot remain empty. Evil will inhabit it if it is not filled by the infinite ocean of God's goodness. You see, we're talking about all this stuff, when, you know, because this, it's our desire and our heart. It's, it's right at the... That's our motivation behind what we do things. And if we don't pay our attention to this, we can just get caught up in keeping the rules. Oh, yeah, well, I've got to be going out tonight with this girl, so I've got to make sure I'm this and that. Yeah, that's all good, has a place, but that's not really getting to the heart of the problem, you know. St. Benedict says this, The desire for God cannot be erased from man's heart. Even when he rejects or denies God, the thirst for the infinite does not disappear. I mean, you just, you know, you look at even the atheists, you can see that. Instead, he begins a desperate and sterile search for false infinities that can satisfy him at least for a moment. When this happens, the good things that God has created as paths that lead to him become idols that replace the creator. So you can hear it, it's being said in all different ways here. Um, I just said that, yeah, okay. I want to move on. This, this is brilliant. Look at this. There is only one temptation. All particular temptations are expressions of this. It is the temptation to believe that the fulfilment of the desires of the human heart depends entirely on us. Oh, wow. I looked at it. My goodness. I think I'll frame it and put it up on a wall. You know, like, 
it's, it's not only in sexuality, but it's everything. You know, we, we want to control things. We, and the whole thing Jesus calls us, Jesus, I trust in you. We have to surrender and trust. It's, it's like such a huge statement. It's, it's beautiful. But it really applies um, to sexuality. Christian morality means learning how to direct our desire for heaven towards heaven. Did you catch that? Christian morality means learning how to direct our desire for heaven towards heaven. So whether you admit it or not, you've got a desire for heaven because you've got infinite desires and nothing in this finite world can satisfy. It means learning how to direct our desire according to God's design so we can reach our eternal destiny. This is the proper context in which to understand all the church's teachings on chastity. Father Simon Tugwell says this, Our appetites need to be controlled because they're out of tune. They're out of harmony without the need for God. But control, this discipline, is only a temporary measure. The ideal is for us not to control our appetites at all, but to allow them full reign in the wake of an uncontrolled appetite for God. So we're taking the narrow road to God in an infinite, unlimited way. If we make our goal to realign our erotic desires with the truth of love, our selfish instincts are sure to put up a fight. We're not saying it's an easy road to walk the narrow road. And that's where the virtue of chastity comes in. Chastity is the virtue that overcomes the selfish pull of lust within us and orientates the wildness of eros towards the truth of infinite eros. If eros is ultimately the desire within us that seeks God, then do you know what all the sexual confusion in the world and in our hearts amounts to? It's human desire for heaven gone berserk. (laughs) So chastity then is the promise of immortality. Did you ever think of chastity in that way? A priest said to me once in confession, learn to love purity. I thought, wow, I never thought of it like that. There's always this battle, you know, battle. If, If we learn to love it, we change our heart's desire, we'll just... It'll be natural. We'll gravitate towards it. The discipline required of chastity does not extinguish the fires of Eros. It takes them up into the greatest wildfire of all, the fire of divine life, the fire of divine love. I just want to show you on on this. Um, these are... Sculptures by the famous um, uh, Benini, St. Teresa of Avila, and Blessed Ludovica. I'm not so familiar with her, but there's a little story there. She died 1533 and was beatified 1671. Um, she used to uh, have ecstasies and levitate. Now, these saints, and St. Teresa of Avila used to levitate as well. So these saints really knew this whole idea of experiencing this, um, what we're talking about in its fullest capacity, the love of God. And, you know, it's, um, 
it, it's amazing. So John Paul said that Michelangelo's painting in the Sistine Chapel is a great icon for theology of the body. He said Michelangelo understood the principles of the theology of the body. So for those of you who don't know, that's in the Sistine Chapel. Sistine Chapel is where they vote for all the popes and that sort of thing, elections of popes. And this is this amazing um, artwork above here. So we talked about um, uh, the Trinity model. Can you see that up the back there? Guys, a bit smaller. Can you read that? Right, so we've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? So this exchange of love, this is how God loves. When you say, I want to love, what do you mean? I want to love like God loves. How does God love? God loves to the Son, the Son back to the Father, and the love so real that we have the Holy Spirit. And there's that line, God has revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an external exchange of love and destined us to share in that exchange. And how does God love? God loves freely, totally, faithfully, fruitfully. That's one you want to write down. God loves freely, totally, faithfully and fruitfully. You can't force love. You have to be total. You can't hold back. You have to be faithful. You can't have another lover. And your love has to be fruitful. If there's no fruitful in God's love, there's no Holy Spirit. And love is always unconditional self-donation that's always open to the transmission of life. There's another definition of love when you're trying to work out how do I love my spouse? Unconditional self-donation that's always open to the transmission of life. If it's not open to the transmission of life, then it's selfish. I love everything about you uh, but your fertility. Okay, and taking control. I'm going to control my happiness and the, and the way I, I do things, you know. Okay, so we apply this to husband and wife and the child within marriage. You have this exchange of love. Spouses love each other freely. You can't force a person to love you. If you've ever been in a relationship that's one-sided, you kind of wish that wasn't true, but it is, right? And you have to surrender to that. have to run love totally. You can't just partly love. That's the problem. Faithfully. Can't have two wives. Sorry, gentlemen. And it has to be fruitful, right? Unconditional self-donation that's always open to the transmission of life. I think that little line is just a wonderful summary of, of, of how we love. Husbands, how do they love? They're to love his wife as Christ loved the church. You listening to this, gentlemen? This is for you. How will you love your life, wife as Christ loved the church? How did Christ love the church? He came to serve and he laid down his life for his bride, the church. Gentlemen, you are called to lay down your life for your wives. Women are just smiling. Hey, go for it, man. <laughs> That's it. You know, I mean, we have this kind of controversial thing. Wives um, have to submit to their husbands, right? And the women get all upset. But what does that mean? Well, sub means under, 
the mission, submission, under the mission. What is the mission of the husbands? To lay down their lives for their wives. So women, you let your husbands lay down their life for their wives, right? So it's, it's not the women who've got the bad deal here. It's, it's, it's the men, we have to man up to it and we have to take on our response. And when we do, we will feel fulfilled. And we will, we will love our wives and our wives will feel fulfilled. Okay, so theology of the body, here's a kind of a timeline chart. Can you read that? It's really hard to read. Anyway, our, our tale of salvation is a tale of two trees. The first tree of Adam was the tree of knowledge that became the tree of death. The second tree was the crucifixion tree. The tree of death, which became the tree of life. And so here we have this timeline, the beginning and the end. And notice these are painted the same colour because before the fall, man didn't have all these problems with temptations and things. After bodily resurrection, we'll, we'll have that back again in fullness. And Christ and his cross is the redeeming. The good news, the Gospels. And so... Um, when they asked Jesus, is it okay to divorce? What did Jesus say? Well, in the beginning, it was not so because they kind of tricked Jesus. Oh, you know, Moses said it's okay to divorce. What do you say? Huh? Jesus says, well, in the beginning, it was not so. So what is in the beginning? It's the first three words of the book of Genesis, right? In the beginning, God created male and female We're made in the image of God. We are persons. We have intellect. We're not animals. We have intellect. We have this yearning of the heart. Chickens don't look up at the stars at night and wonder what's out there, right? (laughs) We do. We this is this is part of us. God gives the command to procreate. And scripture says they were naked without shame. This is a very um, theology of the body expression. John Paul spends a heaps of pages, old chapters on naked without shame. Why were they not ashamed of their naked bodies? Because they saw their human bodies as God's revelation of love. They saw it as an image of who God is. This was before the fall. But once the fall came, then it's, as Christopher West said, it's fig leaf time, right? We have to, we cover up those areas of the body until the bodily resurrection. Did you realise that when we're bodies resurrected, you'll all be male or female? There won't be 15 different sexes, there'll just be two, right? Male or female. John Paul talks about the state of original innocence, which is what Adam and Eve had. They perceived the human body always as an image of God and they were always given to self-donation. They weren't given to self... What's the opposite of self-donation? Self-gratification. Love says, I give myself away for you. Self-donation. Lust is the opposite of love. Do you know what Pope John Paul's definition of sexual purity is? It's this. 
Purity is the ability to see God's eternal mystery revealed through the naked body. Impurity is the inability to see God's mystery as revealed in the naked body. So a lot of this has to do with our own cognition, our own thinking. Only the nakedness that makes woman an object for man or vice versa is a source of shame. The fact that Adam and Eve were not ashamed means that the woman was not an object for the man nor he for her. Original nakedness, as John Paul calls it, without shame indicates a total defenselessness before the other, an absence of barriers. Why? Because they had total trust in the sincerity of their mutual exchange. When they looked at each other, Eve didn't have to do this. She, she had this trust. Adam and Eve's sexual desire was not experienced as a compulsive urge, but as a desire to make a sincere gift of self. In other words, to love like God loves. It was permeated experience which was rich in grace. Now, it's hard for us to understand this because we haven't experienced original innocence. But basically, it's the opposite to how we experience them. We're mentioning this, and you might think, why are we even talking about this? Well, this is the way John Paul takes us back. In the beginning, this is how we were meant to be. Then the fall came. So now, in terms of we're lost in this wilderness, how do we get back? Well, we look at those qualities that were in the original, and we try to bring about things that will um, help us to understand and deepen it. Eve covers her body not because it is bad. This after the fall, right? You know, after the fall, where are you? I'm hiding. And they, they're hiding in the bushes. Eve covers her body not because it is bad, but to preserve the dignity of her body from the degradation of the look of Adam. Eve knows in the depths of her being she was never meant to be an object for man's selfish pleasure. You hear that, ladies? All the ladies going, Amen. Eve knows in the depths of her heart she was never meant to be an object for man's selfish pleasure. Guys, we need to learn this. We need to understand this and respect it. Now note, Adam is her husband. So lust can occur inside of marriage as well as outside of marriage. Let, let, me, let me tell you, as somebody single so long and struggled with all these things, when I finally got married, I felt a huge grace, a huge grace of my wedding. And since married life, there's a huge grace that, that um, and I think about it, oh, what's going on here? First of all, it's no longer a sin. I can be sexually active with my wife. It's not a sin, right? It's a, it's a beautiful gift from God. So, so Satan doesn't tempt me like he did when I was single. So you've got something to look forward to. If you think it's one hell of a constant battle, it will ease up when you get married. But, but he tries to attack us in other ways. He tries, you know, in, in other ways. So you can still lust after your wife by not by treating her as an object. Okay, so it's just not a green light to just do what you want to do. You still must love like God loves. So Adam is her husband, so even in marriage you can lust. Marriage does not justify lust. 
Again, using our partner as an object for our selfish gratification degrades the person who is an image of God. And you can't degrade who image of God. John Paul says that when man, self-donation becomes self-gratification and man dominates woman. And he says, in fact, this is a form of abuse. Okay, man is, is sort of, you know, he would say, oh, men should dominate their women, but no, they're not. We should serve. We should lay down our lives. But we've got to be very, very careful. Men grow up with this thing, oh, the man's the head of the family, he's just going to dominate women. Very careful because there's a fine line where that can just go into a lust and abuse. And heavens knows we have... That's a huge problem that has to be dealt with. And gentlemen, we really do have to lift our mark. And ladies, you have to call your men to this high standard. You have to help them say, I am not your image. I'm not your plaything. you know. You've got to help the guy see and, and, and call it to him so that he raises his standard. So it's got to be both. And if either partner cannot see it, and you're in a relationship for a long time, seriously, you should consider, is this relationship worth keeping? If your boyfriend is addicted to pornography and is not interested in changing, you know, it's alarm bells should be going off big time. You do not want to get into a long-term committed relationship with a person like that because I'm telling you, there is just cliffs and potholes ahead of your journey. It's going to make your life a living hell. All right, so the church is not against us. The church is trying to help us. And gentlemen, if you've got a problem with pornography, deal with it. Deal with it. We're healing this up this weekend, next few days, we have a great opportunity for healing. And um, James Parker's with us, and he's going to be doing some stuff tomorrow. This is great. So what you guys are getting this weekend in this environment with the sacraments and with our priests, and it's just. Great blessing. Okay. Lust grabs for my own pleasure because it does not believe that in giving myself away, I will actually be able to find myself and find fulfillment. It's charity, you think about, isn't it? Lust is sexual desire, but the absence of the love of God. Oh, I love this. This you will write this down and think and think about it. Janet Smith says, "If you cannot say no to sex, then your yes means nothing." Do you love me? Oh yes, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. You can't say no to sex. You're not. There's not love. You're addicted. You're addicted to sex. If you can't say no, when you do say yes, you don't really mean it. You've got no choice in this. You're just this wound up thing and you're wanting to relieve yourself on me. You see, it's just, it's so profound. Think about it. Think about it. The more I thought about this, just, if you can't say no to sex, your yes means nothing. Whew. A man and a woman's body are designed for communion. Do you realize that? Neither body makes sense without the other. They are designed for union. But this, as we said earlier, this sexual desire is designed to take us like rockets to heaven. 
up into the stars. If, however, these rockets get inverted or twisted, they're going to explode and there's going to be just catastrophe. Look at our world. Look at our world. You know, you hear all the time, I'm not, I've got some old man in Rome telling me what to do in my bedroom. <laughs> you say, well, maybe that old man in Rome knows more about the design and the creator which can help us to fulfill our desires than perhaps the sex therapist, you know. But people don't want to listen, right? People don't want to listen. Um, if you've seen that movie, this is just a little bit... Um, light-hearted thing. But you've seen that Trains, Planes and Automobiles movie, you've seen that with uh, Steve Martin and John Candy? There's a great scene in it, right? I'm going to play it for you. It only goes a couple of minutes, right? Um, so I'm going to ask you the question, which character in this is Pope John Paul II? All right. Joker wants to race. Don't race. That's ridiculous. All right, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Put your window down! You want something? Uh, he's probably drunk. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Terrific. Thank you. <laughs> what a moron. They're going in the wrong direction. You're going to kill somebody. So, you know, society's like that, you know. Oh, who's, who's John Paul? The driver of the other car. You're going the wrong way. <laughs> he's, he's, oh, tell me what to do. What would you know? You don't know where I'm going. You know, like, it's, it's, this is the way it is, you know. But he, the consequences, you know, interesting. You see the little devil at the end, you know. It's like, yeah. It's, it's, uh, Anyway, a little light-hearted thing, but there's a lot of truth in that, and you're going to find that when you go out. I'm sure some of you yesterday when you're door-knocking, you know, what do you want? Uh, you don't need to tell me anything. I know, but, you know, just I don't want to know anything to do with religion. But you're going the wrong way. All right. God's motive for creating is love. And, man, and God desires man to share in that divine life, as we've said. God does this by making himself a gift to man. Man receives the gift and gives himself back to God. So man and woman 
image this gift of God and creation by becoming a gift to each other. This gift, the spirituality of gift is called sexual complementarity. Man and woman's bodies were designed for each other. Neither body makes sense by itself. Okay, we want to talk about freedom. So many people say, I want to be free. Don't give me all that church rule stuff. You want to be free, eh? You really want to be free? John Paul talks about the ethic, which is the external law, and the ethos, what your heart is attracted to. Jesus did not die on the cross and rise from the dead to give us more rules. He came to change our hearts so that we would be free from the law. St. Augustine says, love God and do what you want. Yeah, some people think, oh, that sounds easy. Oh, no, no, no. To truly love God, you just want to love what God loves. You want to do what pleases God. You want to do his will. That's a little bit of a pinch in there. Perfect holiness is freedom from the law. Who's a uni student here? Somebody, what's your name? Aleka. Do you need the law not to kill your university teacher? I mean, sometimes you might feel like it, but do you need that law? You don't need that law, right? Okay, that's the way it should be. You should not need a law to be faithful to your wife. You don't come home from the restaurant and say, guess what? I didn't order any cow manure for dinner. So, what are you talking about? Right? So, we, if we change our heart's desire, our spontaneous actions will become right. We will learn to love purity. So-called sexual freedom, that is, the right to do whatever you want with whomever you want and never say no to any inclination, that's not freedom. That's addiction. That's enslavement. You are not free. You're kidding yourself. You're going the wrong way and heading for disaster. True freedom, let's see if I can find it here. True freedom is liberation not from the external restraint that calls me to good, but from the internal constraint, my compulsion that hinders my choice of the good. If I'm not free to choose good, if I'm addicted to sex, I'm not free. I'm not free to choose good. If true freedom is, I don't have an inner compulsion. I don't have to, you know, like a whole society. You know, I was watching that 70s sitcom show, 80s sitcom show, you know, Friends, you know, and they're talking about dating and, you know, having it off with this person and just like, it's just like, no, it's so wrong. It's just so, it, it, offends, my, my, it offends my sense of, of truth, you know. I couldn't watch it, you know. But this is what happens, you know. People go out night clubbing. What's their big aim? They get drunk and get laid. You've you got to be kidding me. That's not freedom. That's addiction. When you're free, Nothing will hinder your choice of the good. That's true freedom.
Interesting, when John Paul uh, went to Chile, he met with the Chilean leader, Pinochet, 1987. And Pinochet tried to uh, justify his actions to John Paul, why the government had to have a hard line, you know? Because he said, if I don't do it, they'll make mistakes. And John Paul says, no, no. The people have a right to their liberties, even if they make mistakes in exercising them. This is our free will. This is our journeys. If we have to chain ourselves up to stop ourselves from sinning, we're not free and we're certainly not virtuous. The virtuous man does not lock up his passions. The virtuous man transforms his passions so he doesn't need a cage. You know, like sometimes if you're dating, well, you have to be careful. You know, you've got weaknesses. You, you don't go to certain places. You don't give each other massages. You don't lie on beds and talk. These are the things that will certainly um, get you into hot water, right? But you've got to get to a point where you can't be, um, uh, you can't just think of two people are in a room on their own. They must be up to no good. You know what I mean? Um, We've got to change our desires. That's what we're on about today, desire. I remember a friend of mine told me that an old Franciscan gave him this knowledge. Keeping the rules will never make you holy. But you'll never be holy if you don't keep the rules. Now, what the hell are you talking about? Well, what they're saying is that the rules on their own don't make them holy. If I just keep rules... I'm keeping rules, but if I haven't changed my heart, if I haven't changed my heart's desires, I'm not holy. If you've got, if you've got a tendency towards being scrupulous or being fundamentalist, as I did in my teenage years, I had to wrestle with a lot of this stuff, this, you, it's got to take seriously because you think you're holy because you keep all the rules. And if you don't have love in your heart, you're in a very dangerous place. If you can get very judgmental about that person, this, this, that person, this, that's bad news. If we're not master of ourselves, we'll tend to try and be master of others. Ladies, have you seen that? You dated a guy who can't control himself, but he wants to control you? Ooh. Warning bells, ding, ding, alarm bells. So many people, be careful. There's so many people marry the wrong people. My own wife is in an old marriage from a first marriage. And, she, you know, she looks back and she just says, I was young, I didn't understand all the circumstances and all of this. But um, it's, um, it's serious stuff because our decisions will have huge consequences. And if they're being motivated by all this twisted stuff inside us, um, if we can get that healed then our life can be very different. I want to say something about redemption. You know, as Christopher West says, Jesus didn't come to give us coping mechanisms for our sins. Right? Theology of the body is not about sin management. Right? Theology of the body brings the full weight and reality of the gospel message to heal us, to change us. John Paul says, do not strip the cross of its power, the power to heal. It doesn't matter where you've been, what's happened, you can be healed. 
Repression is not a way to deal with our sexual desires we've talked about. What we have to do is we take our sexual desire and we give it to Christ and we ask him to transform it into the way he loves. I remember a priest said once, marriage couples should light a candle when they're going to um, sleep together and sexually active. And some people go, oh, what's the matter? It's incredible. We've got so used to thinking that sex is bad. Within marriage, we light a candle, the light of Christ. And we want to, we want to bring God into this union. And if you go, oh, I feel a bit uncomfortable thinking God's watching me. What's something wrong? There's something wrong with your thinking because this was made by God. It's a holy act. Are you doing something within the act that's not holy? Then maybe you're not loving freely, totally, faithfully, fruitfully. Are you contracepting? Are you, are you doing things that outside that the church gives us guidelines for marriage? So the, these are important. We want to allow Christ to heal us. And, you know, I have, to be honest with you, I haven't done a Theology of the Body course talk for many years. You know why? Because I got to the point I realised without this healing, it's all just head knowledge. And I kind of got a bit disillusioned. Uh, and when Mother rang me and asked me to do it, it was funny because Christopher West had just come back in town and I just got all fired up again. And, and then when she said James was going to be here and James is going to be doing healing sessions tomorrow and we're in this environment, we've got the Eucharist and the Mass and the priest, I thought, wow, now perhaps I can contribute something that others can build on that can be meaningful. So, you know... It's not that our problem, the problem with our society is that it overvalues sex. The problem with our society is we have no clue how valuable sex is. We've lost its meaning. And if you can just take that away from our time together, that sex is holy, it's, it's really good. You know Scott Hahn, you've heard of Scott Hahn, right? Scott Hahn got up one day and said, sex is not good. Have you all What's going on? Sex is not good. Campbell's soup is good. Sex is not great. Sex is not great. Sugar Frosties are great. (laughs) Sex is holy. It's holy. Wow. That's... um... And we can say the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person. It actually shows far too little of the person the real person. Impurity is a violation of the respect of God's work because the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're running short of time. I normally try and cover how does you might think, well, of all this about marriage, why would anyone be celibate? Right? Well, there's a huge reason. And... um, Marriage is a sign. It's a sign of what will happen in the next life. In the next life, Christ will marry us. So husbands and wife marry now. Jesus says we won't have husbands and wives in heaven. Does that mean I won't love my wife in a special way? Of course not. I still love her in a special way. And we say to each other, just think, darling, our love is going to last for eternity. And it's, it's, it's really beautiful. You know, it's a real beautiful thing. Okay, so you think, well, how does the celibate life fit into this? The celibate life says he anticipates 
what the next life will be and says, as a witness to the ultimate reality, I'm going to start living it now for Christ alone. And that's a huge thing. And that's not something you, it's not something you can create. You're either called to it or you're not called to it. If you're called to it and you don't respond, well, you're going to miss out. And if you're not called to it, and you be, don't come become a priest if you're not called to it. You'll do so much damage to the priesthood and so much damage to yourself. So discernment is a great process and a very important process. But whatever God's plan for you, then that's what we do. Now that's a very abbreviated, but I'm sure these guys know this stuff anyway. On the couple of minutes remaining, I just want to talk about contraception. Because that was the whole thing of why. Christopher West says, whether you realise it or not, you are doing great damage to your marriage if you contracept. That's why contraception can never be a part of loving like God's love. Because there's not self-donation. There's not unconditional self-donation. I love everything about you except your fertility. If a husband loves his wife... He would never render the womb sterile. It's not love. Could a husband really be said to love his wife if he insisted that she had, say, a nose job or a, a breast implant? Imagine if, if the husband said to the wife, oh, you, I need you to get a, a breast implant. There's a door. Go. Right? Ladies, do not get involved with people like this. Do not get involved. I see so many tragic marriages. Anyway. Um, so that's the same. Gentlemen, you have to love the woman's fertility. And um, gentlemen, it's, it's a holy thing. The day that you enter that holy place in a, in a, in a lady's womb, that day you, you fear to enter, should be fear and trembling and you should be down on your knees. You should light that candle. It's a holy, sacred thing. And you just the rubbish we see it's degrades that. So we, we want to try and change that. We want to be healed. We've all got our rubbish, right? Remember, I got my rubbish, yours. But we're all aiming for this. And we can do it. Doesn't matter. We can do it. God gives us the grace. This is good. We are free to choose between good and evil. But we're not free to determine it. Good and evil exist as established by God. Our freedom says we can either accept or reject, but we're not free to determine what is good and what isn't. That's called relativism, and that's just another trick by the enemy. Sexual union, John Paul says, is a renewal of the marriage vows. When husband and wife come together, they renew their marriage vows. A contraceptive sexual union breaks marriage vows. It changes the I do to I do not. Can you imagine what the quality of marriage would be like if your partner was regularly breaking their marriage vows? John Paul II says that every child that comes into the world is an image of the incarnation. Wow. No wonder we love babies, right? But what does contraception do to that image? It's nothing more than the anti-word of God. 
these issues are much deeper than what, what we think. Look at the tragic consequences since the invention of the contraceptive pill in the 60s. Pope Paul VI said, contraceptive pill will lead to more abortions. And they go, ah, rubbish, why would you know? Going the wrong way, you old man. Look at history, he's proven him absolutely right. And of course the contraceptive pill can actually abort a fetus. So a contraceptive pill in itself can be murder. If we think that the teachings of Christ and the church are restricting us, then we fail to understand that they are gifts for our happiness. 40 to 50% of all marriages fail. You got that? Now get this statistic. Those who do not use contraception, that figure drops to 2%. The church is on your side. It is not against you. The contraceptive pill was not invented to prevent pregnancy. There's one way that you can prevent pregnancy very easily. And as far as I can see, we're all doing it now. Right? <laughs> it's called abstinence. Right? In the final analysis, the contraceptive pill was invented for the indulgence of lust by men. Ladies, don't put up with this. Stand up. God has already designed into our bodies, women's bodies, the fertile and infertile days. So, you know, if we, if we master our sexuality, it's not a big deal to say, you know, I'll be honest, my wife and I, some nights we just say, I just want a hug tonight, you know, just, just, and, and I feel, I feel so fulfilled because I know my desire is not selfish. And it's, it's freeing. It's incredibly freeing to just hug my wife and say, I just want to cull you tonight. And she looks at me and it's just, and we sometimes laugh. We say, I wonder what other people think of our marriage and probably think we're stupid. But it's so beautiful, you know? It, it really is. Every conjugal act is an openness to the penetration of the Holy Spirit. Abstinence is the test of the freedom of the gift. If you can't say no, your yes means nothing. Are you truly free? Well, then, see, can you abstain? Oh, oh no. You know. Sexual union is meant to be an integration of body and soul, a communion of persons, a gift to each other. Contraception ruptures this gift by rupturing the person, by degrading into lust. Every temptation to lust is an invitation by God to learn to love. Turn it around. To enter profoundly into Trinitarian love, which is what those in heaven will do for all eternity. All right, so I think we'll end it there. So thank you for this putting up in this heat. God bless. That was Paul Ellard with Theology of the Body Part 2 destiny and design. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.